Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. This week, I am joined by Rebecca McLean, who is the manager of the Dunedin Income and Growth uh, Trust. So, uh, Rebecca, thanks very much for, for joining us on this very rainy Monday, mo- uh, Friday morning, I should say, in uh, in London. Uh, t- just to kick things off, could you talk a bit about what Dunedin does, just for someone that is not familiar with the trust? Sure. Um, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, um, yeah, the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust, um, this is a, an important year for the trust. It's their 150th anniversary. Um, so the trust was launched in 1873 in Dundee by the financier Robert Fleming. Um, and at that time, the trust was investing in the then emerging markets of the United States. So 150 years is a, a long time um, and the trust has you know, come a long way. Um, and now the investment trust invests in UK and European equities. So as an overview, there are four points of differentiation I'd point you to. Um, so the first is that the trust looks to generate total return. So both income, but also capital growth. Um, it has an active investment approach, and so you'll see high active share, concentrated portfolio. We're looking to deliver resilient income. Um, and then finally, um, the investment trust has got a sustainable and responsible investment approach, which does differentiate it in the market. So in terms of positioning, as I mentioned, it's U- it's mostly UK, but with some European exposure. So about 50% of the holdings are in the FTSE 100. 25% is in the mid-cap. FTSE 250, and about 20% of the investment trust is in European companies. Okay, so um, I think for most people who are investing in a trust that's sort of a similar similar age, if you can, if you can use that phrase, uh, and an investment style or investment goals, um, they tend to think of basically just investing in FTSE 100 stocks, kind of whack it in there, and then sort of leave it to do to do what it does. Um, so how come you and uh, your co-manager have sort of decided to to take this slightly different approach by you know as you as you mentioned partially investing in european stocks partially investing in mid caps as well yeah so we're looking to build a portfolio of our best ideas um and uh, our aim is to deliver a portfolio which is going to provide resilient income so one challenge that you have when you you build a portfolio just of high yielding companies is that you know you need to question why are they high why are they trading at a, a high dividend yield um, and you know the risk is that you invest in a company which has got a, 
a, a near-term high dividend, but there's a risk of a dividend cut there. And um, so we're really focused on making sure that we select companies that we have got confidence that they are going to be able to produce a decent return over the medium term and, you know, both in terms of their shareholder returns, uh, but also um, their distribution, but also their capital growth. And um, so we're looking to balance that yield and growth dynamics, which means that, um, as you say, we're also looking across the we're looking across the market, not just in the large cap. We're looking to take advantage of the UK mid cap space and the European market, too. Um, and I think um, this has been the benefit to the trust. So if you look at the performance um, of the of the income delivery of the companies in the portfolio during 2020, um, the portfolio delivered much more resilient performance than the benchmark, which is the your share. So the income was down about 10% for the companies in the portfolio. Um, this is versus 30% dividend um, reductions in the FTSE or share. So I think that that strategy of balancing the yield and growth um, is playing out as sort of evidence within that within that approach. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, we have got to focus on sustainability. Um, and I think there's a, a number of reasons for that. You know, first is we think it's important from a risk management perspective, because um, often environmental, social and governance issues are material um, and particularly when you're investing over the mid over the long term and the second reason is that we're looking to align the way that we invest with the investors in the investor base appetite which increasingly is to focus on the impact of investments and sustainability themes um, so so for those reasons um, that you know that's that sort of leads us to construct the portfolio that we have so I mean we'll, we'll probably touch on the on the ESG points later on and um, for now I think an, another pretty unique facet of the trust is that you, you generate income by options writing um, I mean there might be other people doing that but I'm, I'm not aware of them um, I think that's that's for, for options kind of a rabbit hole and you can they can end up being rather complicated so could you try and explain can you sort of talk around why you do that and what what benefits it provides to the trust yeah, so um, firstly, I'd say that when we're writing options, we're doing it on a fundamental basis. So we're writing the options in order, in a way that reflects our underlying view on the company. So if a company's done well and we're looking to reduce, we may use an options that way. Or if we're looking to top up, we use options um, which align to that fundamental view. Um, so we're not, not trying to... Um, yeah, diverge from what our underlying views of the underlying holding, um, and um, but what what it does provide the investment trust is additional income. So about eight to ten percent of the income generation in a year typically will come from option writing. Uh, the way we do it is we write um, a limited number within the year, um, and each one generates a meaningful amount of income. So we're we're um, yeah, sort of not doing lots of lots of options, but we're trying to concentrate our efforts into into writing options that's going to generate some decent income. Um, and then the other point to make is um, that the strategy is low risk because all the options that we are writing are fully covered by stock or cash. Um, so that reduces the risk around the option writing. Um, and really, the, 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 key, the only sort of main risk around the option writing is counterparty risk. So um, that's something that's important to consider when you look at our option strategy. OK, and uh, another facet of the portfolio that I think is, again, arguably quite unique is just how concentrated it is. So 
Can you talk a bit about that and also why why you do that? Yeah, you're right. So there are 36 holdings in the portfolio and the active share is currently 86%. Um, and the reason is we are looking to invest in our best ideas. Um, and really, when we have an idea, we want to put our capital behind it um, and have a meaningful position. Um, so we're concentrating that capital in what we think are the best ideas with the companies which have got the best future return potential. Um and I think that, you know, it also helps the, that we have got a, a quality approach too, um, in terms of um, when, we're, when we're selecting companies, you know, we're looking for companies which are resilient um, through the cycle and will perform through a range of, a range of economic conditions. And so that, that quality tilt um, does support that sort of concentrated positions that we have so yeah it's something which you know we 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 we've been actually increasing the active share over time if you look at the the active share a couple of years ago it has gone up um but it's something that we're we're happy with the shape of the portfolio yeah that sounds good um so another another i mean kind of obviously given its name and what, and what you've been saying so far is that um you're trying to generate income for for investors um, I think if you look at the UK, in a way, it's been a bright spot over the party in past, let's say, 18 months or so. I think as a whole, um, okay, dividends have gone up for a variety of reasons, whether it's like energy prices or, or rate hikes. Um, but as as that also kind of implies, um, there's some dispersion there. So you're also seeing companies cutting dividends as well in some sectors. Um, so can you, you talk a bit about how that's affecting the companies you're invested in? Also, more broadly, um, I mean, let's say that you you have a holding that fails to pay a dividend or it's cutting, whatever it might be. Uh, how, does that sort of change the way you think about the company, or how do you how do you respond in, a, in an instance like that? Yeah, as mentioned before, we're looking for resilient income delivery. So companies that provide an attractive total return, they've got income, but they're also are able to deliver capital growth. Um, and so um, the and again, sort of those companies which have got a particularly high yield, you need to sort of question why that is and the sustainability of that yield. Um, so we really do monitor the dividend risk across the portfolio. Um, every board meeting, um, we provide a dividend risk report to the board to discuss um, and we can track over time sort of our expectations for future dividend performance of, of each company in the trust because it is so important that you um, manage that risk of a dividend cut. Um, as you say, you know, when, when a company cuts its dividend, that's probably going to be have a negative impact on the share price performance as well. So it impacts your dividend, but it also impacts your return. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely a key focus. Um, but, but clearly the investment trust has got an income mandate and we can't just invest in high quality growth companies which are not producing shareholder uh, shareholder distributions. So we do have a portion of the portfolio where we're prepared to um, maybe um, sort of compensate some of those quality characteristics for the, the income generation of the companies. So they're more high yielding companies and they're probably slightly lower companies lower quality than the overall portfolio and we don't have a a specific target on what proportion of the portfolio falls into that bucket but currently when I look across the portfolio probably about 20 to 25 percent of the income is coming from those high yielding names which are um, 
yeah, and that will be a, a specific focus in terms of the the out, our outlook for those dividends um, for those companies. But you mentioned, you know, it, you can there, you know, it's not always easy to spot when when a dividend's going to get cut, and you know, we unfortunately have had um, recently a holding cut its dividend, so we had a position in Direct Line Insurance, um, and um, you know, we we were supportive of the underlying investment case of the of the company but also the dividend was part of the rationale for holding it in the investment trust um and the company had a very disappointing update to the market at the start of the year um where it's seeing a range of um factors influence its profitability including claims inflation it also had some weather impact um and some write downs on property um and so together the company did to cut the final dividend and this um, there is uncertainty about the outlook for shareholder distributions for the company um, and because of that uncertainty we took the decision to exit the position because the yield was an important factor in our rationale for holding the business um, so we will respond if there is a change and we you know unfortunately that's one that we got wrong but you know there are many other companies that we own that have been increasing their dividends you know companies like a Morgan Sindel or a Volvo so you know hopefully you sort of are able to pick those ones which have got a, a, a resilient and growing dividend and you know avoid those mistakes or those companies which have got um, material dividend cuts. Something that you, you touched on earlier in one of your in one of the first questions was on the fact that the portfolio also has this exposure to non UK companies. I think it's about twenty percent, um, and it's predominantly or, or entirely European companies. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah. And so, like, what's again? Can you sort of talk through the the process there? You know, why would you invest in a company there as opposed to the UK? And and what are the holdings in the portfolio look like at the moment? Yeah, I think this is a, an attractive um, part of the digit offering is the uh, opportunity to invest overseas outside the UK. Um, so at the moment, as you say, it's about 20% of our of the holdings in the portfolio are European companies, but we're actually looking to increase that to 25%. Um, and the reason being that we do see there being a diversification benefit from being able to tap into some companies um, in um, M markets and having with market positions which are, are unique and unavailable to investors who are restricted just to the UK market. So in terms of some examples, I've already mentioned Volvo, which um, manufactures machinery um, and okay, construction machinery. Um, and the company you know, is in a cyclical industry, but within that, it's a relatively um, higher quality company. Um, and the company has got a really strong order book and, and um, robust pipeline. And we've seen the the company deliver good results recently, um, in addition to having high yields. So there's sort of a couple of reasons why it's why it's why it's within the portfolio. Um, another holding is ASML. Um, so you know this is a, a unique company. It gives us exposure to a part of the market that you that you can't get exposure to structural growth um, and a dominant market position uh, within its markets, which you which you don't get in it in the UK. So I think that it's helpful having that option to be able to invest in companies outside the UK market. Although sort of noting that the UK market itself 
is made up of a, a diversified stream of different um, revenue, um, geographic revenue breakdown. So about about um, currently for Digit, about 75% of the underlying revenue of companies in the portfolio is from outside the UK. So, you know, whilst even though, even though a company is sort of listed in the UK and it's got 80% of the portfolio is in UK, it is much more diversified geographically um, from its underlying holdings in line with the market. Yeah. Okay. Well, another another point that you made earlier when you were sort of talking talking about what the trust does, it, it was on the ESG mandate. And um, one one of the things I see with with a lot of trusts that uh, talk about ESG uh, is that it's often a it's rather ill defined term. So, can you talk through what it actually means in terms of how you invest? First of all, and secondly, then if you if you look at the portfolios, I think you have Total Energies as your third largest holding. But I think that was at the end of uh, March. So I think again, you know, there's there's, there's all these ac- you have accusations of people are uh, greenwashing or things like that. So if someone looks at the trust, they might go, you, you know, you claim to have this ESG mandate, but one of your biggest holdings is actually an oil company. Um, how how do you kind of square that square that hole as, as it were? Yeah. So in terms of um, how the sustainable and responsible investment approach is applied and impacts the way we invest, um, we think about it in two ways. So the rationale for um, including a sustainable approach is that we're looking to mitigate the risk of the risk of com- from companies in the portfolio of long-term environmental and social themes, um, but also tap into the opportunity which some of these themes provide. Um, so there are both negative screens that are applied to the investment universe, which help take out some of those companies which have got the highest ESG risks. Um, so these screens will include the likes of, of defence, tobacco um, and elements of environmental impact like fossil fuels, as, as we've mentioned. Um, so there we're looking to um, you know, use the screens t- in order to reduce that, those sustainability risks. In addition, ESG is part of our fundamental analysis of companies, and we rate each company that we that we uh, provide, which we write research on, on ESG. Um, And so that's our own proprietary forward-looking view on the ESG risks facing a company. Um, And that also forms part of our negative screen or sort of refinement of the universe. So we're trying to um, identify and and, and limit exposure to those companies that we feel have got, based on bottom-up stock analysis, the highest ESG risks. So the negative screens are a combination of sort of uh, sort of quant screens which are maybe based on business practices and then also our own proprietary research based on what that where the areas of highest ESG risks are in a market so that's the negative side on the positive side um, you know, I'd say this is probably more of our focus so we're looking for companies within three categories we're looking for sustainable leaders which are companies which have got best-in-class ESG performance Solutions companies, which are aligned to um, maybe a sustainable development goal, is a company which is going to provide a solution to an environmental or a social unmet need. And the third category is what we call improver. So these are transition companies. They're companies which are not really considered to be very particularly strong on ESG at the moment, but um, we see positive momentum in their ESG performance and we see them as being potential ESG leaders in the future. Um, so those are the three buckets. We've got the leaders, the solutions companies, and the improvers. Uh, and so each company in the portfolio is allocated to one of those categorizations. 
Um, so you mentioned Total, um, and that fits within our improvers, our improvers piece. Um, so Total, you know, clearly has got a high environmental impact at the moment, given the etc. Um, oil and gas. However, the company is putting real effort into transitioning to low carbon. Um, so about 30% of its capex is, is what they class as green capex. Um, the company has been investing in renew- its renewables business. So it's, it's, it's grown from about three gigawatt a couple of years ago to 17 gigawatts in 2022 and has an, has an aim to get to 35 gigawatts by 2025. So we, um, based on bottom-up analysis and engagement with the company, we have assessed that their transition plans are credible. Um, and um, and as such, we see them as a leader within their space in terms of that energy transition. So um, yeah, we've that that that's the rationale for why it sort of makes it into the portfolio. Um, it's sort of based on that view that the that that's going to be it's going to be an important company um, investing to enable the transition to low carbon. Uh, so as a, as a consequence of this, the portfolio has got a lower carbon footprint than the benchmark, um, and then independent. ESG ratings providers like MSCI um, have have reviewed the portfolio and MSCI rate it as AAA, which is the best score you can get. So there you go. No greenwashing taking place here. Okay, so um, so um, yeah, to finish off, we've got a couple of questions, which I suppose are a bit more broad looking at the market as a whole. Um, one that I find interesting is if you look at, you, you know, I've been uh, working now for not very long, so about six like five, six years in, in the industry. Um, and I would say in that time, pretty much as a, as a constant, uh, you'll find that the UK is, is almost always trading at a lower valuation um, than, than its peers on, on almost every metric. So I'll go once in a while and look at Yardani Research's PE, forward PE ratios, and it has a sort of comparison of um, the UK and other, and other regions of the world. And almost without fail, the UK will be... Um, Below, below almost every peer, even even emerging markets. Um, so, I, from from my point of view, it seems like there's it's it's kind of sentiment driven um, and, and market dynamics driven, and that's probably a whole conversation unto itself, which which I think is kind of frustrating. So, it's not actually based on on fundamentals. Uh, so, I'm, I'm curious if you have any sort of thoughts on one why it's happening and two whether you think things can improve and basically valuations can sort of become more in line with peers? Yeah, I certainly agree that the UK market is looking cheap um, versus its own history, but also versus other other indices. Um, and I see this as, um, as positive in terms of it, it, it provides an attractive opportunity set to invest in. Um, you know, whether you're looking at um, the a, a PE or an earnings multiple, um, it's a trading at a material discount. If you're looking at the dividend yield, it's trading at a premium to the likes of a you know an SP or an MSCI Europe. So um you know we see that um that it is an attractive market to be investing in. Um, I think you know the there's the number of reasons which are behind this um and um and some of them um some some of these issues or risks that people see in the market we actually see as opportunities um so for example um people see you know inflation is obviously a key theme driving markets at the moment and um persistent inflation is something which you know is very much front of mind 
um, at the moment. But we've been really reassured by the performance of the companies in the portfolio in the last year when we've had a you know the highest level of, of inflation in a generation. Because of our quality approach and our bottom-up analysis, pricing power is you know is a key factor that we're looking at and the companies have demonstrated really good pricing power being able to pass on their high input cost to their customers um and so um you know companies like in the companies like Crodo which you hold in the portfolio games workshop Unilever have have really demonstrated their pricing power uh, and the strength of their brands through this period of inflation so that that's something which we find reassuring and then the other the other sort of concern that people have about the UK market is they say it's sort of old economy. Um, and I think that I think that's um, unfair. We see plenty of opportunities to invest in really innovative and interesting companies. Um, so, you know, whether it's a, an Oxford Instruments um, genus, well, we've talked about ASML, which is European listed, but you know, we do see that there's a, really a companies which have got strong um, R&D and um, moats from their technological um, advantage. So we see, we, yeah, we don't, we don't see that sort of um, that sort of negative. And I think just in terms of what could close that gap, I mean, we already have seen heightened M&A within the UK market. So within the portfolio last year, we had Aveva, which was an industrial software company being bought by Schneider Electric. Um, we also had Euromoney, which was a data business um, that was purchased. And then very recently, within the last month, we've had Decra, which is um, a, a, a a sort of a, an animal um, pharmaceutical company being being um, sort of rumours uh, or an approach for a private equity takeover there. So I think you know international investors are looking at the UK market and looking to take advantage of the discounted valuations. Um, sterling weakness you know last year has has made the market even cheaper although you know near term that the sort of the strength of the currency is sort of reversed so um yeah we see that those those sorts of events you know the market's not just going to let the the discounts last forever there will be triggers which will close that gap between the market price and the intrinsic value of these businesses like takeovers so we we, we see that it, the valuation is attractive for the market we see plenty of opportunities for for buying really strong companies and we think that valuation gap should close yeah i mean I, one follow-up i'd have to that if you're if you're happy to answer it is um i think again something you touched on right is that there's this sort of critique of a lack of innovative sorry, innovative or, or whatever you want to call it, the types of businesses that are listed here in the UK. Um, one thing I've seen over the past couple of years is basically because of the M&A you mentioned, a lot of these companies just seem to get picked off. Um, on the one hand, that's that's a positive for, say, shareholders in a, in a trust like yours because you see you'll, you know, you're likely to see quite a big bump in returns if, if a premium is paid, which usually it is. Um, but on the other hand, you could say, well, at because these companies keep getting pe- picked off, usually by you know bigger player listed in the US, maybe not, not could be a private company as well. Um, it sort of prevents them from going on to become you know a FTSE one hundred conglomerate type company that people are saying is lacking. So, do you think there's a sort of again positive benefits? I don't know if you have any positive or negative uh, view on it. Like, what 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 do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the there still remain a number of 
strong companies in the in the UK market which are innovative which are forward thinking uh, are investing in um in their own IP and research and development so you know companies that we own in the portfolio um include AstraZeneca which has got you know really strong pipeline of drugs including a couple of potential blockbuster drugs um which um provide an attractive outlook for growth and we saw sort of their their um what they produced during covid their ability to to respond to need um and that's you know a fantastic company that's listed in the uk headquartered in cambridge but it's got um material exposure in the us um and in emerging markets too so um you know we that's a fantastic uk company that we've got we think it's attractive attractively valued given that growth outlook um and it remains it's actually our top holding um, another company I've already mentioned is Oxford Instruments. So they provide tools for academic and industrial processes, but they're conducting business in a range of sectors from um, semiconductors to uh, materials and also quantum computing. Um, so it's a very interesting company. It spends about 9% of its revenue on R&D and technological leadership is a, is a core barrier to entry to them and, and strength of their competitive positioning. Um, so we, we see there are a number of, you know, remain a number of innovative companies in the UK. Um, but sort of when I take a step back and look at where we are within the cycle, you know, there's certainly some nervousness about the outlook. Um, whether it's the US macro environment, but also um, the UK, we're adjusting to higher interest rates. We've seen volatility in the banking sector and and, and sort of heightened um, concern around the resiliency of the banking sector. So I think it's it's prudent to have a balance in your portfolio and to be really confident in the underlying holdings. Um, and I think that you know we feel reassured with the companies that we've got in the portfolio that they should be able to perform through, you know, what could be a tough time this year um, and, you know, a range of economic environments. And so, yeah, that's what we're, that's what we're striving for when we're looking to select companies which have got, you know, deliver attractive total returns, a capital and income, uh, in resilient income delivery. Um, we're looking to build a portfolio which is, you know, well diversified and balanced of those with those types of companies. So that that's what that's what we're doing. Well, that's a good point, Awid, for us to finish on an optimistic note as well. So, Rebecca, thanks very much for joining us, and hopefully we can chat again soon. Thank you very much, David.